0: Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. You know, if you were to think back over some of your worst decisions, you would likely discover that some of your greatest regrets were probably tied to something deeply emotional to you. Now, I know you didn't come to church this morning to be reminded of some of your greatest regrets, but stay with me. I I do have a reason. I'm not going to leave you there, okay? But uh, all of us, all of us, something that we all have in common is that all, if not most, if not all of our regrets were triggered by something that was deeply emotional to us, something or someone that had a strong emotional tug or pull on our heart. That weekend that you wish you could take back. That date you wished you hadn't have gone on. Maybe that first marriage. Maybe that timeshare. <laughs> that large financial purchase. Whatever it was you were deciding about or making a series of decisions about probably had a very strong emotional appeal. In fact, it was so appealing, you bought it. It was so appealing, you ate it. It was so appealing, you moved there. It was so appealing, you dated it and moved in with it. It was so appealing, you snorted it, you smoked it, you drank it. It was so appealing that you fill in the blank. The reason we have regrets over those times in our life that we look back on and think, man, what was I thinking? is because the emotional appeal of that thing or that person was so strong that we got sidetracked from the direction that we intended to go and the destination that we intended to arrive at. But then something strange happened. He, she, it lost its appeal. And then you're left sitting there asking yourself, man, what was I thinking? Or, how come I didn't see that coming? And then for some of you, what began as attractive, appealing, it became a prison for you. And what started out as a pastime, recreational fun in your mind, a slight detour, slowly and gradually became not just a pathway, but a prison A pathway that you can't seem to get off. And then you find yourself staying at the Hotel California, which according to the song is, you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. Now you have a habit you can't break. You have some life-controlling issues that you feel helpless to do anything about, or you're in a codependent relationship that's becoming more and more toxic. And man, you, you don't know what to do. You honestly don't know what to do. You're torn about it. So I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Let's keep this short and sweet, okay? Here's my charge to you today. Let's not do those things anymore, okay? Those addictions, those codependent, let's just not, let's just, let's just not do that. All right? If you're an addict, if you're an alcoholic, just quit. Just quit, all right? Let's pray and go eat, all right? Don't you wish it was that easy? But here's the deal, and this is common to all of us. The things that tend to get our attention the most, the things that distract us and get us off track spiritually and lead us to make those decisions that we end up regretting, there's almost always some type of emotional appeal to those things. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. But before we get to that, let me real quick get you up to speed as we conclude this little short three-part series we began a couple of weeks ago. Thus far in this series, we've underscored a couple of big ideas, so let me quickly kind of go over those. The first big idea was this in week one, the principle of the path, and the principle of the path says that direction determines destination, that the best way to predict your future in every area of your life is to pay attention to the path that you're currently on. But since we don't always do that, since we sometimes get sidetracked along the path, Then there comes this disconnect between what we intend to do or where we intend to go and where we end up because, and this was the other big idea, direction always trumps intention. Direction always trumps intention. You always end up where the path you're on takes you regardless of what your intentions were, regardless of where you say you're going or what you're going to do, direction ultimately determines destination. See, young people, this explains why your parents seem to overreact when it comes to certain emotional things in your life. So you young people that are in here, your pastor's going to do you a solid this morning. I'm going to give you some insight, and I'm not going to charge any extra for this. But let me tell you, the reason that your parents sometimes seem to overreact is because we're we're reacting to where you're going, not where you're at. Isn't that right, Mom? Isn't that right, Dad? We're reacting to where you're going, not where you're currently at. That's why when you're in a relationship with someone... We'll often get up in your face and grill you about like Questions like, does he have a job? Does he plan on moving on, move beyond taking tickets at the Tilt-A-Whirl at the County Carnival? Right? I mean, I'm happy for you and all that, but is she still in school? What's her family like? Right? See, we're asking those questions because parents know it's not about now, it's about what's ahead. And if you don't remember anything else about this morning's message, remember this. Every single relationship you're in is headed somewhere. It is. And our tendency in relationship is to focus on the now. But the people who love you the most have a tendency to look at where the relationship is headed. Not only are your parents concerned about where you're heading, so also is your Heavenly Father concerned about where you're heading. So in other words, both God and Mama care about you. They do. Both mom, God, and dad care about you. right. So as we wrap up this series this morning, I want to talk about the power of emotional appeal. And the reason this is important is because the path or the past we really need to be careful about are those paved with strong emotional appeal. Things like romance, things like desire, acceptance, attention, money, security, right? And, and while these things aren't necessarily wrong in, in themselves, in fact, they're, they're all good things. But these things all have deep-rooted emotional attachments and any time emotions come into play, we're vulnerable to getting sidetracked because shiny things and appealing things do two things to us. First, they lower our defenses And second, they raise our defensiveness. Shiny new appealing things distract us by doing those two things. First, they lower our defenses and they raise our defensiveness. They lower our defenses and they raise our defensiveness. Do I need to say that again? That's why we won't listen to the warnings of those close to us, our friends, our family, those who love us the most, when they call us out on those things. They're not emotionally attached to the situation, which gives them a clearer picture of of what's ahead. And they can see that, man, if we continue on that path, it's not going to end well for us. And they want to warn us. So as we conclude this series this morning, I want to kind of help bring some application to these things that we've talked about the past couple of weeks. We've talked about how how direction trumps intention and how the only way to change our future is to change our direction. But what does that look like? What exactly does that look like to to change direction, right? Right? Well, fortunately, the Apostle Paul talks about this very thing in one of his letters to the church at an ancient city called Galatia. And he uses uses different terminology, but he's talking about the same thing, basically. So let's read what the Apostle Paul said about the principle of the path. In Genesis 5.13, he says, for you, and he's talking to Christians here, and that's important. I'll come back to that in a second. But he's talking to believers here. For you were called to freedom, and I'll come back to that word in a second, too. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now that word flesh is kind of one of those Bible-sounding words that might not make a whole lot of sense to you, but basically Paul's talking about something that that you experience every single day in your life. It's your appetite, it's like the the things that we see, the things we hear, the things we taste, the things we touch, because see, those are the things that elicit desire within us. And if you're not careful, those things, those desires, those appetites can dictate the course of your life in a way that gets you off the path you intended to be on and gets you into trouble. See, here's why. If, If you say, think about this, if you say yes to every appetite, if you said yes to every fleshly impulse, as ironic as it sounds, you'll lose the very thing you're wanting, the thing that Paul said God called us to, which is freedom. Not only that, not only do you lose your freedom, and this is the sad part, you infringe on someone else's freedom as well. In other words, not only do you hurt you, you hurt someone else. And ultimately, think about this, ultimately what Christianity is all about is relationships, isn't it, and how you treat other people. So the Apostle Paul says, look, you're free, but don't use your freedom to harm you and don't, especially don't use your freedom to harm anyone else. He says, rather, here's the contrast, he says, Here's what you're supposed to do with your freedom. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That is, leverage your freedom for the sake of others. And Paul continues in verse 14. For the, and this next word here is huge, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love. Everyone say that word with me love your neighbor as yourself. See here Paul is echoing the words of Jesus when he says for or because the entire law and he's talking about two things here. He's talking about the Jewish law which was 615 some commandments started out as as 10 at Mount Sinai by the time the New Testament got here there were over 600 of them but that's for a different sermon but here Paul's talking about two things he's talking about that Jewish law with all those commandments but he's also talking about civil law the law in regards to uh, our duty to our fellow man right you know, the the things that, you know, you want want to teach your kids or the the thing that you hope your husband does or that you hope your wife doesn't do, all of that stuff. He says, for the whole or the entire law is fulfilled in doing this. See, this is why Christianity is so liberating. He says, the whole law, any rule, any rule you come up with is actually fulfilled in one rule, one commandment. Doing this one thing, loving your neighbor as yourself. And if the decision that you're about to make infringes on your neighbor's freedom, then don't do it. If it's not good for her, if it's not good for him, if it's not good for them, then it's a sin. So don't do it. But Paul's not finished. It's like one of those infomercials. But wait, there's more. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then here's that word, that flesh. All right, walk by the Spirit. Now, what does that even mean? Can you walk? I, I mean, if it's Spirit, can't you just kind of float along? Is this some kind of like a Jedi thing? What, what, what's, what's, he, what's he talking about here? He's talking about living your life in a way that syncs with the Holy Spirit by being sensitive to those inner promptings, those inner nudgings of the Holy Spirit throughout each day. And the reason this is important for us to know is because if you'll make your daily decisions based on what's best for others and not follow through on your own selfish desires, then you won't be as attracted or distracted by those shiny emotional things that tend to get us sidetracked each day. Paul continues in verse 17, for the desires of the flesh, there's that word again, are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Now here Paul's talking about that that inner conflict that we all experience every day of our lives, that that war within us between what we ought to do and what we actually do. Can anyone relate to that? All right? It says, For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Isn't it interesting that the want to and the ought to are always in conflict in our life? You ever notice that? The want to and the ought to are constantly at odds, Right? It seems like they should go hand in hand, that, that, that we should want to do what we ought to do, but think about this. If you always did what you ought to do instead of what you wanted to do, there would be no dessert section on any restaurant menu, right? Cheesecake Factory would have to change their name to Brussels Sprouts Factory. Smoked Creations would have to be Smoked Tofu and Veggies, Right? Strong emotional appeal is actually a red flag, not a green light, which means when something's shiny or glitzy or emotionally appealing, instead of immediately pursuing it or acting on it, we should pause, step back, and view that thing, that relationship, that purchase, that job opportunity, that whatever that shiny appealing thing is, we should view that opportunity through the grid of, is this going to reign in my freedom for the sake of others? Paul says in verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. But if you're led by the spirit, again, this this isn't some kind of spooky ethereal thing. This this is just paying attention to the internal nudge that God's going to kind of, you know, move on your conscience at times because he's not going to yell. Listen to me. God's not going to yell. He's not going to scream, right? It's a, Bible calls it a still small voice. It's more of an internal nudging. But here's what you need to know. It will always, always, always nudge you, nudge me toward reigning in my freedom for the sake of other people. Always, it will always do that. He said, you're to be led by the Spirit, and if you do, you're not under the law. Now, that's an amazing statement. Why? Because the reason you're not under the law is because Jesus has given you one command. And when you live by that one command, you don't even need the law. You ever thought about that? And if you submit to that, that that one Jesus command Right? And you can take either version. You can take the love your neighbor as yourself or the bigger one where Jesus ratcheted it up, love other people like I have loved you. Right? He says if you embrace that as a lifestyle, if this becomes uh, the way that you live out your everyday life, your marriage, the way that you parent, the way you relate to people, your morality, your dating, if this becomes your marching orders, then you'll know instinctively what to do. You'll know instinctively which path to choose. Right? And you'll also know instinctively which path to avoid. Because Jesus' one command always brings us back to this terrifying but clarifying question. And it's this question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? What does others' firstness require of me? What does a selfless lifestyle look like? What does that require of me? What does lay down my life for a friend require of me? If it's not good for us, why would I do it? It's appealing but does this run the risk of undermining our relationship? It's appealing, but does this set us up for conflict later? It's appealing, but why is it I hope my children don't find out about it? Then he goes on, as if he hadn't said enough. He says, just let me be clear. And then he basically gives us this list of things that we already know about. But here's the interesting thing about this list that Paul gives us. You look closely at it, and you're going to see things, these things that he mentions are expressions of things that undermine other people's freedom at the expense of our temporary satisfaction. It's as if Paul is saying, okay, you want to know what works of the flesh look like? Here you go, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evidence: Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, verse 21, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And the sad thing is this, is, this isn't even an exhaustive list. These are just an example, right? Right. Paul, Paul's giving us a general idea of this works of the flesh. But now, you've got to understand this. This list that Paul gives us here, it only applies to Jesus followers. You need to understand that, right? We can't expect people who don't embrace the New Testament ethic to love their neighbor as their We can't expect them to walk by these guidelines or, you know, opposed to these things. He's talking about things that should be characteristic of Jesus followers, people who make decisions based on what's best for their neighbors. And then what he says next sounds a little disturbing in verse 21. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I debated here in my study because I actually thought about just skipping over this verse because it does sound a little disturbing, doesn't it? There's actually two different interpretations of this and honestly, this is for another sermon. But I don't think he's talking about that you won't go to heaven. Because if that were the case, there'd only be one person in heaven, and that's Jesus. When you look at some of those things, say, well, I'm not sexually immoral. I'm not into sorcery. No, no, no. But look at some of those other things. You ever get angry? You ever have envy? See what I'm saying? But again, that's for another sermon. I'm just saying my personal opinion is he's not talking about, look, either way, it, it, it leads to loss. Either way, it leads to loss, whether that's loss of eternity in God's presence or my interpretation is loss of the kingdom of God that he wants to instill in these different areas of our life here and now. Here and now, right? Again, this is really for another sermon. The point being, look, you don't, you don't want to put yourself in that situation because you're going to end up losing something, right? If you never sense anything in your conscience when you do something that benefits you short-term and hurts somebody long-term, see, if you're able to do just chase all that emotionally appealing, shiny stuff, and it, it, it never bothers your, your conscience, you should be a little bit worried. Really. You should be a little bit worried. You should, to use the Bible word, repent. Or, to use the phrase that we've been using in the series, you should begin living in a different direction. See, it's time to opt out of satisfying, it's, t- it's time to opt for satisfying over appealing. right? Which is far more satisfying. How satisfying, you say? Well, Paul says, let me tell you what this looks like. And then in verse 22, he pivots. And he gives us another list. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the outcome, the result of saying yes to that internal nudge is exactly what you're after in this life. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's, it's goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Single people, it's, it's who you want to marry. It's who you should become. It's what God has invited you into. Married people. It's making your marriage a competition of submission to each other to see who can outserve, outprefer, outconsider each other. Then, after giving us this list of, of these satisfying things, what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, he makes an absolutely brilliant statement. He says, "Against such things, there is no law." In other words against immorality, against envy, against jealousy, against lust, against all those things, he says, there's no law. See, we have to have some laws, some restrictions, some guidelines for our life, otherwise we'd self-destruct. So when we embrace the ethic of others first, when you love people the same way that God through Christ loved you, he says, the result is this, and there's no law against these things. In other words, let, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, you know, lately I've just discovered that my wife has just had too much patience. Honey, you have just been too stinking patient with me. You need to cut that out, okay? I just can't handle all this patience, right? Or, you know, maybe something, you know what? Mike, where's Mike? Mike, you've got, I've just been talking to you lately, you've got way too much peace. I'm sorry. You <laughs> you need to stress out a little bit more. Don't you know it's Christmas time? right? Right? or how about maybe, maybe you're driving somewhere going to grandma's for Christmas or something like that and, and then the kids are all quiet in the back and you're like hey you kids need to get a little rowdy back there you're too quiet start drawing your lines of death and hitting each other and spitting on each other right see here's, here's the beauty of Paul's invitation to this life of freedom You really can't overdo any of this. You can't have have too much self-control. You can't have too much patience. You can't have too much peace. Paul says, I'm telling you, this is the freedom you've been invited to. You, You don't need any laws. You don't need any rules. It's a life of one rule and no regrets. It's a life of one rule where you don't create regret. It's a life of one rule where you don't become somebody else's regret. And why wouldn't anybody sign up for that? Seriously, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to sign up for that? Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The best way to predict your future, the best way to predict where you're going to end up is to pay attention where you're headed. And along the way, make sure, listen to me, make sure you don't get sidetracked by any of those shiny or emotionally appealing things that we encounter pretty much every day of our lives. So, let me ask you this awful question, because remember, only people who love you ask questions like this. Have you become sidetracked by something so shiny, so appealing on your path, that you fail to recognize that you actually got off the path and off the direction that you intended to go? Have you lowered your defenses, and have you elevated your defensiveness? Or are you willing to respond to that, that nudging, of the Holy Spirit on your heart right now and change course? Are you willing to change paths? Are you willing to begin living in a different direction? Is there a way back? Absolutely. Yes, there's a way back. It's the principle of the path. And remember, a principle can work for you or against you. The principle of the path is a principle. Direction, not intention, determines your destination. This is why if you change your direction, then things will begin to change. See, you actually had the power to predict your own future all along. You didn't even know it, right? You had the power to change the trajectory of your life all along. How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? You know that Dorothy had the ability to go back to Canada. Her, she could have taken her and Toto back home right away, right? She had the ruby slippers, right? That movie didn't have to be two and a half hours. She didn't have to encounter the Wicked Witch of the West, the Wicked Witch of the North, the Flying Monkeys, all those other sketchy characters. The Wizard of Oz could have been five minutes. That was it. In the same way, God's given you the ruby red slippers, but your slippers are sowing and reaping your way back on the right track. Just like you sowed your way off the path, so also can you sow your way back onto the right path. And Kyle's going to come up now and kind of tell you how that was lived out in his life not long ago.
1: to bring it home, so I'm going to talk about how the principle, uh, the path uh, lived out in my own life. So Lauren and I got married uh, 12 years ago, and uh, we set our vows, and we were looking forward, right, starting our, our uni, starting our marriage together, and we were looking forward to fulfilling those vows, right, uh, building a, a strong marriage together, right, putting Christ at the center and, and growing closer uh, together, but marriage is hard. And why marriage is hard is because you can't control another person. I can't even control my my three-year-old. And you've quickly, we quickly fell into this routine of not loving one another as much as we loved ourselves, right? And I fell into a routine of I'm going to start working more. She starts working more. Easy to justify, right? We need the money, uh, And it's easy to justify a lot of things. Well, you know, everybody has hobbies, so I'm going to spend time on my hobbies, what I want to do, you know. And you got to have friends, you know. I should still keep my guy friends that I've been, you know, i got to still be with my friends. And so pretty quickly it was I'm putting myself first. I'm loving myself more than anything else. So the guys are going to the sports bar. Well, I'm going to go watch the game at the sports bar too, you know. And there's a trip to Vegas. Well, I mean, I'm a groomsman in the wedding. I have to go to the bachelor party in Vegas. And at the end of the day, when, you know, we should be together connecting, you know, there's a a TV in the basement and the game's on, so I'm going to put myself first because I've kind of been stressed out and I need to unwind, to watch the game. And I, I knew where we wanted to go, right? This is where I wanted to head, right? I wanted to be over here, but I'm just loving myself and I'm not really loving her and over time, I learned a hard lesson, and that is that when you always get what you want, you end up where you don't want to be. Because when you get what you want, guess who's not getting what they want? The people closest to you. So you get what you want, and what do you do? You hurt the people closest to you because you're too busy loving yourself. And I'm talking 100% about myself. And that's where I was at. And while I wanted to be over there, I was over here, and I was heartbroken. And I was lonely. And I was frustrated. And I was thinking, "There's got to be a way out of this." It's like, there, I mean, what is this anymore? I mean, like, there's not much joy here. There's not much love here. And so you start to think, "No, well, look ahead to something else in life because this is—it didn't work out." In those really dark moments. You start to think, I don't think anyone would really miss me if, uh, if I wasn't around. And you feel so far from where you wanted to be. But I came to my senses and I turned. I was all the way over here. But I turned. And in that, that moment, I received God's grace. And I received the Holy Spirit. I started to walk it out, the direction I wanted to go. But you know the thing about walking back? You don't have to walk back to here. you got to walk double. And that walk back is really hard. And the enemy will whisper lies in your ear and heap shame on you. Because you know what you did? And that shame feels really heavy. And you think, I can't possibly make it all the way over there where I want to be, where I thought I would be. And even after you turn, you receive God's grace and I received God's grace and I received the Holy Spirit when I turned, but it's like, this is just a long, hard road. And this is what I learned. And I know someone needs to hear this. God's grace doesn't just save you, it sustains you. That's how good God's grace is. It is that good. We don't deserve it. God's grace is his unmerited favor on our life. And some of you have experienced God's saving grace when you turned, but you need to experience God's sustaining grace to walk you where He wants you to go. In my life, it was a marriage of two people that were married singles, that were just roommates, two, day by day. But let's, let's spend time together. Right? Let's talk and connect. Let's make time for each other. I'm not going to go to sleep till I take your hand and I pray. Even if I don't feel like it. Day by day, we walk it out. Day by day, it gets easier, but it's still challenging. Galatians 3.3 says, you started, you turned, and you had the Holy Spirit. So why are you trying to walk it out on your own effort? You know what you need to walk it out? You need the Holy Spirit. You need to invite the Holy Spirit into your life. You're going to have those toxic thoughts come into your mind that are gonna heap the shame and condemnation, that are gonna say to you there's a better way out, those lies, and you need to take those thoughts captive like the Bible says, and you need to say, Jesus, help me, Holy Spirit, help me. The Holy Spirit is, is God, right? It's the power of the living God alive and active within us. And to walk out this path, right, of where you wanna go, you need the Holy Spirit in your life. And the Holy Spirit and the grace of God and the love of my wife is what got me over here, right? It's, yes, I'm going to make a point to spend my quiet, I'm starting my day asking God to fill me up with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I know I need the Holy Spirit to walk the path i got to walk that day. And over here, it might be loneliness and isolation, it might be crippling debt, right? it might be anxiety and depression, and whatever it is, God's grace can save you, and God's grace can sustain you, and it can be with you along that walk, His grace is that good, right? The Holy Spirit is that powerful. It's the spirit of the living God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and powerful and it's, it's available to us. We gotta receive it, we gotta ask for it. God, fill me up with the Holy Spirit. God, strengthen me because I need you. And what does God do, right? And if you think for a second, my shame is too great, my sin was too great, what did Paul say? Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That's why his grace is so good. That's why his grace can sustain you all the way to the life that he has for you. This life over here, it's life that's full of purpose. It's life that's full of freedom. That's the life that God has for you. God has a life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. If there is an area of your life where you need more self-control, invite the Holy Spirit into that area, and he's going to be with you to walk over here. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit in this place. And Father, we... We know we can get distracted and we know we can turn aside and we know that walking, following you can be hard. It can be challenging and we can sometimes feel giving up and turning aside. But right now, we decide. If if, If the Holy Spirit's prompting you that you need to make a turn, you need to invite the Holy Spirit into an area of your life, just respond on the outside to what God is doing on the inside and just slip your hand up included in this prayer. Just take that next step. I need God's sustaining grace. If that's you, you need God's sustaining grace. Just slip your hand up right now. Father, help us. You see these hands, you know our hearts. We need the Holy Spirit. We need your sustaining grace each and every day. We want to follow after you. We want the life full of love, joy, and peace, and freedom and purpose that you have for us. So strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And lead us in Jesus' name. And everybody said.